scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 14, verses 21 to 28. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 923. Again, today's scripture reading is from Acts, chapter 14, verses 21 to 28. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for your holy word. As it was just read, we now pray for the preaching of this word. We pray that your spirit will accompany the preaching of your word to do what human words cannot do, to open up hearts, to help the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us to see and to believe. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this fall, we have begun a sermon series that has been highlighting our new vision statement. We've been trying to describe in this series the kind of church that we hope to become as we continue to carry out our mission to make God-loving and compassionate disciples of Jesus Christ among all nations. And I, I do encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to listen to our previous messages in this series, which you can find on our website, on our podcast. And I hope you actually do become as familiar with this new vision statement that we have as I know many of you are with our mission statement. I think it's going to be a great thing to commit to memory. I think it'll be helpful for you. So if you haven't done so already, uh, you can still find that vision statement in your bulletin. If you want to look inside, next to the order of service, it's written there. So if you could turn there real quick and look at it, I want to, I want to restate it for us once again. So here's our new vision statement. HCC seeks to be an urban Chinese heritage church in central Houston that reaches all those in our lives, Chinese or otherwise, through equipping, sending, and planting. Now, notice how this vision statement begins by addressing the question of identity, what kind of church we seek to be. And so I recently, recently preached on what it means to be an urban Chinese heritage church our vision, as you can see, also takes into account our particular context in which we are to carry out our gospel ministry. And so we've talked about how 
we are located here in central Houston and how we're in very close proximity to a number of key institutions like the Medical Center, Rice University, University of Houston. And a significant portion of you, you were drawn here, whether across the country uh, or even across the globe, you were drawn here by these very institutions. You are a transplant to Houston. And so God has called you here for a season, and there's, there is a chance that after you complete your training, after you complete that particular work project you're on, God might then go and call you to move on to another city or even to another country. And that is actually a common occurrence that happens not just here in our English congregation, but also in our Chinese congregations. So our congregations are highly mobile. Now, of course, we could be sad about that. We could bemoan the fact that people just keep coming and going throughout our church. Those of us who are more rooted here, you know what it's like. You know what it feels like to invest so much time and energy into relationships here with people at church. But then in a few years' time, a good chunk of the congregation just turns over and familiar faces are gone and all you see are new faces. It can be discouraging. Or... It can be exciting. Of course, that depends on your perspective. It all depends on whether you've captured this vision of us becoming an equipping and sending church. But of course, for that to happen, that's going to call for a ministry mindset that's focused not just on retention, but on replication, on reproducing disciple-making disciples so that if they do move on from here, they're going to be sent well-equipped to continue their discipleship in Christ in another city, being a blessing to another church. And that is a beautiful thing. That's what we envision here. Now, for those of you who are rooted here in our church, please hear me out. Of course, we want to retain you. If you are rooted here, we want you to stay rooted here. That's why a, a, a big aspect of this vision we've been talking about, uh, especially the part that's related to up the upcoming building project that, that we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come, that in a large part is being carried out with you particularly in mind. We do hope to expand and to renovate facilities in order to serve all the individuals and all the families that are rooted here. But at the same time, even if Houston is home, and HCC is your home church, we still want to challenge you to consider being sent. That's why, that's why church planting is a component of this vision. You see, HCC has a legacy of church planting, and so we want to keep that legacy alive. We want to continue intentionally church planting. And that's because we believe that healthy churches plant churches. Healthy churches plant churches. We believe that church planting should not be considered this rare occurrence, this, this detrimental thing that can happen to the life of a church. No, rather, we want to see church planting as something common, something intentional, something to occur throughout the lifetime of a church. Think about, think about the sign of good health within the human body. Just as healthy body cells naturally multiply and divide, 
a healthy church, a healthy body of believers, will naturally multiply and divide. And when that happens, we call that church planting. It's a natural result of a growing body. It's not a bad thing. It's a sign of good health. Things are going well. But of course, let's not be, let's not be naive about this. Uh, I, I hope you hear me. I, we're not saying that planting is a definitive sign of church health, because not every instance of planting would be considered healthy. There is such a thing as unhealthy church planting. That's most obvious when it's the result of internal division, internal strife, and you can try to dress it up as a church plant, but everyone knows it's really a church split. Or there's such thing as unintentional church planting, and that's when planting is really a reluctant response to a group in the church just wanting greater independence or who are perhaps dissatisfied with the status quo. And so the planting process might actually go smoothly. It might actually be harmonious, but it's typically unlikely that the church is ever going to want to do that again. Unless, of course, another group within the church grows similarly dissatisfied. It happens, but it's totally unintentional. That, my friends, is not what our vision has in mind. We envision a form of church planning that's viewed positively, and not just as a remedy for the good problems of church growth. It's not like we're looking around and we're like, oh no, you know, there's so many people here. We're just running out of space. We're running out of room. I guess we're going to have to church plant. No, that's not the motivation here. Our vision is to treat church planting not just as a response to church growth, but as our very strategy for church growth. In other words, as gospel ministry produces spiritual and numerical growth among us, we want to intentionally plan for multiplication, to multiply ourselves into new churches that brings the gospel to new communities outside of our current reach. But of course, for that to happen, as we said, a new mindset needs to take root where it's not just about retention, but about replication. Not just about institution building, but about kingdom building. Because it's true that if you, if you pursue church planning, your institution initially will get smaller. But you're okay with that if your goal is for the kingdom of God to get bigger. That's why we need a new mindset here. So what I want to do this morning is to take us through... A passage, and, I, and what I hope to help you see is how really t- today's theme is very closely related to last week's. You see, last week we talked a lot about the Great Commission. We talked about the call of disciple making, and the point there is that fruitful evangelism should aim to make disciples of Christ, and not merely to get decisions for Christ. We're not just getting people to decide something. We want them to be a disciple, to intentionally continue following Jesus. Well, we just want to continue that theme right on into today. And we're going to argue that fruitful churches should aim to actually plant other churches and not merely to make a bunch of disconnected disciples. What I hope to demonstrate from Scripture is that Planting churches was the healthy and natural response to gospel growth during the time of the apostles. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at an excerpt from the book of Acts, 
that describes for us the tail end of the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. And here, I believe, he sets a pattern for all of his subsequent missionary journeys and a pattern that still is for us to emulate in our day. So this morning, what I want to do is the first, consider the pattern of church planting found in the book of Acts. And second, we're going to talk about the vision for church planting here in the city of Houston, particularly the next project that we have in mind as a church. If you want to follow along, look inside your, your uh, bulletin, you'll see an outline that takes us through those two points. All right, so first turn with me, if you haven't done so already, to Acts 14, starting in verse 21, and, and let's see Paul's pattern of church planting as it was on display in his first missionary journey. Now, back earlier in the beginning of Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned and they're sent by the church in Antioch to journey throughout the southern region of Asia Minor, preaching the gospel and planting churches. Now, they end up traveling in this first journey to nine separate cities. And wherever they went, uh, they witnessed gospel fruit being born. And at the same time, they experienced religious persecution. So they saw the fruit, but they also saw a hostile response to that fruit. So by verse 21, they had most recently visited a city called Lystra, where Paul was attacked by a crowd. He was left for dead. And it says, amazingly, the next day, he just got back up and they traveled to the next city. They took them to the city of Derby, where they saw a better response to their preaching. And there it says they made many disciples. But then, surprisingly, instead of staying there in Derby, where the fruit was happening, verse 21 says Paul and Barnabas backtracked their steps and they returned, as it says, to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Friends, what I want you to notice is the pattern of church planning laid out in those very verses. Notice, first, how fruitful evangelism resulted in not just converted people, but a covenanted people. Paul and Barnabas didn't travel from city to city making just a bunch of disconnected disciples who are just going to have to wait for heaven one day to see each other. No, they congregated these disciples into a covenant community that we call the church, and they set leaders over them, leaders who are going to continue helping them in their discipleship to Christ and continue equipping them for the good work of ministry. So look with me at verse 21. Here the pattern begins with evangelizing a city. They preached the gospel to, literally it says there, they gospelized the city. They gospelized that city, and they had made many disciples. So that right there, of course, is Matthew 28, Great Commission stuff going on. Now, in this context, because of the very short time frame, making many disciples, as it's said here, is probably not referring to what we would understand as a long process of discipleship that, that happens throughout the course of your Christian life. Here, it's just simply another way of saying that in this city, they led many people to make a decision to follow Jesus. They came to the city, 
preaching the gospel, preaching the good news that the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them condemns you. Condemns you for your refusal to acknowledge and to rightly worship him as Lord. But at the same time, this same God has shown a light of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again for our forgiveness and for our inclusion into a spiritual kingdom where we live under his loving rule as both our redeemer and our king. That's the good news. That's the gospel that they preached. And when they preached that gospel, Paul and Barnabas made sure that they called for a response among their listeners. Because preaching, of course, is not just conveying information to people. Preaching has to include a call for a decision. Who will be Lord of your life? You or Christ? Who is it going to be? Who's going to be your Lord? Who's going to be your King? And those who respond with repentance and faith are those who answer Christ. Those are the ones who are rightly now considered disciples. They decided for Christ. That's what it means in this context that he made many disciples. Those who decided that Jesus will be Lord. But notice how Paul and Barnabas were not content with simply leading people to make decisions for Christ. Because if that was enough, if that it was their only goal, then they would have just moved on to the next city, looking for the next harvest field. That would have been all they're looking for. You made a decision? Great. Let's go on. But notice how they backtracked. And they went back to the same cities, in spite of the opposition that they faced there, in order to mature those disciples in Christ. They were committed to maturing as many disciples as they had made. Which, of course, leads to the next step in this whole pattern of church planning. It begins with gospelizing a city, and that then leads to congregating disciples. Paul and Barnabas returned to all of those cities, and they bound disciples together into an, an identifiable church. And then they took the time to strengthen their souls and to encourage them to continue in the faith. Look there with me in verse 22. There it Verse 22, it begins with this emphasis on strengthening souls. Not just, notice, not just filling minds with biblical teaching, but feeding and nourishing souls by way of heart application. And that's a big difference. Not just, not just aiming at the head, but aiming ultimately at the heart. You see, friends, I, 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 can, I can help you to understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Like I, I, can, I can take you through it systematically and explain to you what this doctrine means and how you are counted righteous in God's eyes by faith alone in the saving works of Christ alone. I can, I can help you to understand that and get you to, to regurgitate that back to me with precision. But that glorious truth won't strengthen your soul unless you see how it applies to your struggles with insecurity and self-doubt, or how it undercuts your tendency towards pride and self-righteousness. That's when you get to the heart. That's when you begin to feed and to strengthen the soul. So 
Friends, if you're responsible for teaching disciples, whether that's just your own children in, 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 in your own home, or if you do have believers under your spiritual care in whatever context, remember this. Remember that your aim is to strengthen their souls. So don't just aim at stimulating their minds. Aim at stirring up their affections for God by speaking to their hearts, speaking to their motivations. What's happening there in the heart that's hindering them or that's discouraging them from pursuing God? What is is it going to take to motivate them to go hard after God? I recommend you confronting them with a God of glory, a holy, glorious God who at the same time extends abundant love and gracious promises, promises that find all of their yes in Christ crucified. If you give them that God, that's going to stir their souls. That's going to strengthen their souls. Now notice as well how Paul and Barnabas, they also try to encourage disciples to continue in the faith. Notice it doesn't just talk about your faith on a personal level. We're not just talking about encouraging people to keep believing, to keep having faith. No, notice here the article, the This is an encouragement to keep true to the faith, to a particular body of teaching passed down from the apostles, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This, my friends, is an encouragement to maintain sound biblical doctrine. Now, first, you have to learn this doctrine. You have to learn the content of the faith. And then, then you have to keep true to it to not cave under any pressure to change it, to not try to add to it or subtract from it. You see, one of the most fundamental responsibilities of a disciple is to continue in the faith that has been entrusted to you. Keep it, preserve it, guard it with your life even. So on a practical level, what this means is that when it comes to discipleship, I believe it's important that we intentionally catechize believers. That means to help Christians to learn the basic doctrines of the faith. And historically, what the church would do is they utilize what's known as a catechism, which is really a, just simply a teaching method that relies on a question-answer format. Starting at a young age, in the home and in the church, disciples throughout church history were catechized. They were systematically instructed on the basic principles of the faith. And it's unfortunate that in our modern age, we have forgotten this historic practice of catechesis, of systematically instructing believers at a young age into the faith. And so if any of you are actually interested on what does this look like and is there a modern version of a catechism, well, I encourage you after service, go over to our bookstall and ask for uh, a chance to look at a copy of the New City Catechism. I think we have a few copies there um, and we'll try to get some more for, for the weeks to come. And that might be something that you can utilize within your own family or within your small group or just on a personal level of helping you to lay down the basics of the faith, so that then you can keep it faithfully. 
Now, friends, look with me in verse 23 and notice a final step in this pattern of church planting. After, uh, after gospelizing a city, congregating disciples, Paul and Barnabas, they didn't just move on to the next city and the next church plant until, until they had appointed leaders. So verse 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So this was extremely important to the apostles that distinct local churches would be under the local leadership of elders who were appointed from within their community. A church was not yet considered complete until they had elders. And that's what Paul told Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, when he says to him, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And notice in Titus and in our text, notice the plural. Not just appoint one elder, one man to lead the entire church, but a team, a plurality of elders for every church. Now we learn later on in chapter 20 of Acts what Paul expected this plurality, this team of elders to do. What's their job? Well, they were to shepherd the flock of God. They were to watch over the church as overseers, caring for the sheep, especially protecting them from the false teaching of wolves. And that's why, that's why they need to be godly men who are above, repro- above reproach and who are able to teach and to instruct in sound doctrine. Those are some of the qualifications he lays out in First Timothy and in Titus. So th- this, my friends, is Paul's pattern. He would travel from city to city, preaching the gospel, gospelizing that city, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, and whoever responded with repentance and faith, whoever became a disciple, he then would congregate them together as the church. And then he would strengthen and encourage them in the faith, and then he would leave them in the good hands of elders who would continue on the good work in their local church, shepherding their own people. And Paul would repeat that pattern over and over again through three missionary journeys. And I believe that's a pattern, not just found in the book of Acts, for us to look at historically but a pattern for us to study and to emulate today. So let's shift gears now and let's focus, let's focus on the city of Houston in the 21st century. And the question is whether or not that same pattern in Acts should be emulated in the here and now in our context. So let's talk about a vision for church planting in Houston. Because I, I, I don't want to presume that everyone agrees that we actually need more churches in Houston. I'm sure every day on your commute, as you're going to school, as you're going to work, you probably pass by a dozen churches, and some of them probably have massive buildings that can seat thousands of people. And so you might be asking, isn't that enough? Like, don't we have enough in, in all places in the city of Houston? We've got huge mega churches. Aren't, 
Aren't the existing churches with their existing appointed leaders, aren't they capable enough to do the job of evangelizing our city as well as strengthening souls and encouraging disciples to keep the faith? Is there really a need for more churches? That's an understandable question, especially when you see so many church buildings around town. Now, let me answer that question by first saying that any argument that we're going to make for the need to plant more churches in Houston is not suggesting that there is no need to renew existing churches. Church renewal and church planting are compatible goals. You can pursue them together. So in fact, I would even argue that church planting is an effective means of renewing existing churches. Because through the process of planting a church together, the planting church is often reinvigorated. And members who are inspired, uh, members who end up staying, are then inspired to step up and to fill all of those ministry gaps left by the members who go. And so I I really don't see it as an either-or situation, but really a both-and. We need to be intentional in our efforts to both plant new churches and to renew existing churches. But at the same time, at the same time, we cannot ignore the facts. And the fact is, is that older existing churches are much more likely to see transfer growth that is growing by the transfer of believers from other churches, whether transplants to Houston or from within Houston. So while, on the other hand, though, new church plants, they tend to be more effective in reaching the unchurched community. So in his book, uh, Center Church, Tim Keller, he mentions this one study that said that the average new church plant gains one-third to two-thirds of its new members from among the unchurched. Well, on the other hand, older existing churches gain 80 to 90% of new members through the transfer of other believers from other churches. So what that basically works out to is that an average church plant will draw unchurched people at six to eight times the rate of an older church of similar size. So it just simply, just by looking at the statistics, newer church plants do draw in more unchurched people. And you might be wondering, why is that? What what explains this phenomenon? I think it's, it's obvious if you think about it. It's because older existing churches have the very important responsibility to care for the churched people that are among them and to minister to their needs. That is a very necessary and needed responsibility, to shepherd the flock among you. Which means that as they get older and they have more members, then they they have to dedicate time to the members. And they can't dedicate as much time and as much energy towards the unchurched compared to a new church plant. Who doesn't have that many churched people among them? That's the very nature of being a new church plant. That's the very nature of planting. But of course, as we know, new church plants will 
eventually get older, and they will have to eventually dedicate more time to their members and less time to the unchurched. And that's just a natural progression that even new church plants are going to have to face. And you can't deny that natural progression. You can't reverse it. But you can continue to church plant. And that, my friends, is why our vision is not just to plant one church. Our vision is to plant a church that is a church-planting church that continues the vision of church-planting themselves. Because we always want to be reaching the unbelieving and the unchurched. And so we recognize that new church plants have the bandwidth and they have the energy to more effectively do that compared to an older existing church. This past week, I was um, at a luncheon with the Houston Church Planting Network, and one of the speakers made a compelling case for why we need to plant more churches in Houston. He explained how right now, the population of greater Houston is about 7.2 million. 7.2 million people in greater Houston. That's huge. But he goes on to say that we actually right now only have about 4,800 churches. And that's not even factoring in how faithful these churches are actually at in preaching the gospel and making disciples. I mean, we, we just, there's just 4,800 registered churches. So what that works out to be with the ratio here is that right now there tends to be about one church for every 1,500 people in greater Houston. Now, recent studies have shown that the average church in the, in the U.S. gathers about 65 people together each week. Now, yes, of course, we have a few churches in town with massive congregations that probably does raise the average for us in Houston. So the average you know, Sunday attendance in Houston probably is higher than 65. But even still, even still, looking at the ratios, there is no doubt that a very large percentage of Houstonians are currently unchurched. And demographers predict that by 2050, by 2050, the population of greater Houston will reach 12 million. 12 million people. So, you, so just think about that. If you want to simply maintain that same ratio of one church to every 1,500 people, that's going to require 8,000 churches by the time we get to 2050. So that means in the next nearly 30 years, at minimum, we'll need to plant 3,200 new churches. And that's not even factoring, how many, factoring in how many churches shut down each year. So the actual figure of how many churches we need to plant to keep even up with that ratio is significantly higher. Now, if I've lost you with all those numbers, it's okay. Here's the point. The point is, we don't even have enough gospel-preaching churches right now to effectively reach the unbelieving and the unchurched in Houston, let alone what it takes to keep up with the exponentially growing population. So yes, there is a need for more churches, and yes, we need more churches to catch the vision to plant church-planting churches. Now, there's one more question we'll need to address. What is it going to take? What is it going to take to plant more churches? Now, there's so, way, so many ways to tackle that question. 
Of course, it will take a church planter and the means to prepare that planter without the right person to lead and shepherd a group of disciples into becoming a newly covenanted people, a new church, and without the right kind of equipping and training, it is very unlikely that you're going to plant, or at least to plant in a healthy way. You need the right planter and the right preparation. In church, we need to be so grateful, so grateful to the Lord for recently providing to our church, our first church planting resident. You've, you, 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 most of you know him. He was already up here earlier. Jonathan Huang, one of our former elders who grew up in this church, baptized and discipled in this church, has been pursuing a call towards vocational ministry, which now has a sharper focus for him to become a church planter. He recently finished seminary. He recently joined us on staff as our church planting resident. And as he's gaining practical experience here serving with us, John is also at the same time being trained by Houston Church Planting Network going through their finishing residency program. So our plan as a church, Lord willing, is to plant an English-speaking church that is equally committed as we are, as this church is, to gospel-centeredness, theological soundness, and disciple-making. We're going to try to plant an English-speaking church committed to those things, but we also want that future church to pursue a multi-ethnic ministry. Because here in Houston, we recognize that many majority-culture-led churches are already pursuing that same vision of a multi-ethnic ministry. But what we really need, what needs to be added into the mix here in Houston, are more minority-led churches pursuing that same vision, but just coming from a different direction. So we're aiming for the same goals, but coming from from different angles, and I think that's going to be more effective for the kingdom. Now, the timeline is not set in stone, but we are open to planting, Lord willing, sometime you know, around the end of 2023 or the beginning of 2024. Of course, all that ultimately is in the Lord's hands and timing-wise, but that's what we're going to plan towards. And so we ask for you to pray, to pray for us, to, to pray for John and his family, and, and even to pray for yourselves, to pray and to ask God to show you what role you might play in this next church planting project for us as a planting church. Now, let's return to that question I asked, though. What will it take to plant more churches? I think, of course, having the right planter and the right preparation is important, but what matters most, friends, what matters most is for the church that's doing the planting to have the right attitude. First, we need to be willing to send our members and our money. That core team that that we're going to form to help start this church plant will likely draw, it's going to have to draw, first of all, from from some people outside of our church community, but it's definitely going to contain some of our people, some of our committed members, people that you are going to surely miss if they were to go. Members of our church who faithfully give right now of not just their time and their energy, but also of their resources. Their giving, and more importantly, they themselves will be sent to be a blessing to a new congregation, to a new community somewhere here in Houston. 
If we have an attitude that only sees that as a loss, if we can't see that as a huge gain for the kingdom of God, then we won't become that planting church that we envision. But thankfully, thankfully so many of you have been learning already on a smaller scale how intentionally multiplying your own small groups is a greater gain for the church at large than for your personal loss of not being able to see that friend week to week uh, in small group. You can see them at church but on Sundays, but maybe not in your group. But you've been learning that. You've been seeing the, the, the glory in that. And so those lessons learned, I think, can trans, translate beautifully to now this vision of us doing it on a larger scale as a church plant. Secondly, though, along with a willingness to send our members and money, we need to be willing to trust and to let go. And that's especially the case for us church leaders. Just like with any parent who has gone through the experience of sending your kids off to college, you know that they need their independence. You don't want to stunt their growth. You don't want to stunt their maturity. You know it's not healthy for you to still try to extend your parental authority. You know, even after they left the home, you're still trying to control their lives. Now, you know that's not healthy. You know you've got to trust your kids, and especially you've got to trust God and let go and release control. Well, the same goes with church planting. The church plant will have its own appointed leaders, its own elders, like all the churches that Paul planted in Acts. And there's, there's no question, I, I, I see no concern uh, about their commitment to the faith. I, I believe whoever these leaders are going to be, along with John, they're going to be sound and biblical in their doctrine. Well, there's no question about that. But they need the freedom to create their own identity as a gospel-preaching, disciple-making church. And so what that means is that they might end up having some theological distinctives that we don't share, or some ministry practices that we don't do, or some ministry partnerships that we don't have. And that's totally fine. Actually, that's totally to be expected. Any of you who have adult children who are now raising their own families, you know that your own kids don't parent their kids exactly like you did to them. And some of you are actually grateful for that. You're, you're happy for them to grow in independence and to, and, to, and to learn what it's like to raise their own families. And that's the same thing. The attitude we need to have for the members who go, the leaders who go, we need to be happy for them to learn what it's like to lead their own churches. So we need an attitude that's willing to send members the money, to trust and let go. And third, we need to be willing to step up. If some of us are called to go and to plant a church, well, then at the same time, some of us are going to be called to stay and to support and also to step up and to fill those ministry gaps left by those who go. And what happens is that more and more disciples are going to be given opportunities to use their spiritual gifts to serve and to edify the church, both, of course, in the church plant, but also here in the planting church. And again, many of you have already experienced this blessing in your own small group community, 
because of intentional multiplication of your group in the past, some of you right now are serving in a leadership role, which is something you never expected you were going to do in the past. You never imagined yourself to be a leader, and now here you are. But gospel growth, gospel growth occurred, right? People were growing in, in your group spiritually and numerically, and the natural healthy response was for you to multiply and divide that group. Ministry needs arose, and you then faithfully stepped up to fill those needs. Well, the same phenomenon is going to occur as our church responds to gospel growth among us in our congregation. And let's respond with the natural healthy plan to plant a church-planting church. May God be with us and with our plans. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the vision that you've given us as a church. And this vision includes, of course, the desire to be a church-planting church that plants church-planting churches. And I pray, Father, that you make that happen that you work in us right now, in our own hearts, to give us the attitude that we need to become a church that plants churches. And may you speak to us personally in what role that we might be able to play in what you are doing through HCC, throughout the city of Houston, and ultimately for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. Show us, Lord, how we are to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.